You're listening to Kitchen Table Finance. Join Dave Shotwell and Nick Nauta as they cut through the complexity of financial planning and serve bites of investment advice that are both personal and practical. Hey, Dave, how are you doing today? Not bad, Nick. How are you? Good. Glad to be uh, back at the podcast. It's been kind of yeah. sporadic this summer, so yeah, we Seems apologize like to all of our valuable listeners, a.k.a. All, Dave's mom. Uh, yeah, I was going to say all, all five <laughs> or six of you out there. Thank you. Uh, but it That's is right. a uh, beautiful early summer day, a uh, late summer day, excuse me. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, let's uh, let's get this done so we can go sit on the on the porch and do work. I like it. I like it a lot. And I'm excited about today's episode as always, uh, or not as always, but we had previously done an Ask Me, Ask Us Anything podcast. And so we're back at it. We've got some more listener questions that we're going to answer today. So these are always fun and exciting for us. So without further ado, Dave, question number one is, I have lost almost half of my retirement in the stock market. I have stopped making buys, but is that the wrong strategy? So first of all, yes, that's the absolutely, absolutely the wrong strategy. And I, you know, if there's one thing I like to get up on the table and just yell at the world about, it's how Americans don't want to buy investments when the prices are lower, which the only thing Americans don't like to buy on sale is stocks. It's the old, uh, the old right. <laughs> and you know, the, for for many um, younger investors, it's quite possible that what we have gone been going through over the last eight months could be the buying opportunity of the next ten years. We actually, with the help of uh, our intern Michaela this summer, put together kind of an analysis that I'm hoping to turn into a little bit of a longer blog post here soon. But we actually looked at what would have happened if you committed to investing $1,000 a month from your paycheck into, we just used Vanguard's total market index fund because it's easy and covers the whole stock market. What if you just bought a thousand dollars a month of that fund from 2007, the beginning of 2007 through last April, this April, uh, April 2022. Mm-hmm. And I kind of knew the answer going into it, but I wanted to put it on paper and show people, you know, in those deposits that you would have made during 2008 and 2009 early 2009 would have been heart-wrenching because you would have had less money in your 401k, even adding $1,000 a month. And it would have, it would have been really discouraging, like what our, you know, asker has brought up here. But those individual $1,000 incremental deposits during those ugly, ugly times are the ones that would have had the best returns between the end of the financial crisis market problem, which was early 2009, March 9th, 2009 was the market bottom. So if I look at my spreadsheet that, that we put together, that $1,000 deposited on in March of 2009, at the time, your cumulative return would have been negative like 33% on what you had put in during wow. the last 18 months. But the return on that particular $1,000 over the next what has this been? 11, 12, 13 years would have been an average annualized return of 14.5%. Wow. Whereas 
your average return on the whole thing over that time span was almost dead on at 10%. Hmm. So, you know, the deposits you make during good markets may feel better at the time, but those aren't the ones you make money on. It's the deposits right. you make when everything stinks and you're buying stocks nobody else wants at the time because they will come back. Yep. So yeah, I'm pretty passionate about that. Yeah, that's a great point. And we'll have to put your chart in the show notes if we if we can. Well, yeah, I, I was just thinking by the time this podcast gets posted, I want to have this chart up as a blog post. So we'll get that perfect. Done. Pressure's on now. The world yes. knows. Yep. 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 It's out there. It's out there. I've committed. <laughs> but yeah, you know, there's one thing that like the financial planning industry could drill into the heads of uh, of uh, American retirement savers. It's the more the market goes down, the more you should be buying. Yeah, absolutely. It's just changing the mindset on that, right? If you're in the accumulation phase, which is you're putting money in and the market has a, what the media is going to gonna call a crash or a bear market or what have you, that you need to change that around to, that's my buying opportunity. Right. And that's all that's happening. And that's just a right. change of mindset of, hey, everything's on sale. I got to keep doing what I'm doing. Or even better, think about what would it look like if you put $2,000 in and got that 14% rate of return on that $2,000 yeah. as opposed to $1,000. That's have the I, mindset you have to have. Have I told the old brick and rubber band story on the podcast before? I'm sure you have, but it's always worth repeating. So right. have at well, it. Because I think this, this captures the idea really well and succinctly for people. But back in my early days in the business, I went to a training session with a bunch of it was more brokerage salesy training, but one of the guys there told a story about a guy, you know, the legend of the legend, kind oh, yeah. of thing, who was like the the guy to go to in Chicago in like the '60s and '70s and '80s if you wanted to, you know, invest. And he just took care of everybody, and he would just look at people and hand them. He as they're like going away after opening a new account. First of all, he'd tell them, "I'll call you if I need anything. Don't bug me about the markets." And then he was, but there's going to be a time in our relationship. You're going to want to hurl a brick through my office window because you're, you'll be so mad at your account balance. So here's the brick and around the brick, he would wrap a rubber band and he would say, the brick is to throw through my window, the rubber bands to attach your check, because that is exactly right. When you're maddest at me about your market outcomes is when you should be investing more. So slide the check under the brick and toss it through my window. I love it. It, you know, it's it's silly, it's tongue in cheek. It probably never happened, but I think it kind of drives home that idea. You know, you can picture that gruff guy like just throw a brick through my window, but give me more money because that's exactly what you should be doing. So uh, I hope somebody took him up on it. That would have been yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how October 1989 looked for him. Anyway, right. so I want to, if we can, Dave, unpack the part of this question. So uh, I think we've talked about the buys in terms of mm -hmm. continuing to make the buys. But the other thing I want to touch on is uh, the, the question is, I've lost almost half of my retirement in the stock market. And so mm -hmm. you and I know that the stock market kind of worst case at the, at the peak down at the trough was mm -hmm. down around 20% or so. And so that begs the question of if you're down 50%, what exactly are you investing yeah. in? I don't necessarily want to speculate on that, but I think the more important question is, 
if you have an account that's down 50% and the market's only down 20%, that's something that we probably should be paying attention to. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And, you know, maybe this, maybe the writer of this was not being, you know, literal about what they were down. It just felt like half. But to Nick, to, to what you're getting at, you know, a couple of things come to mind, like literally from like the last six months, if you were invested in like large cap tech stocks, you may have been down 50% or close to it. I'd have to, you know, go back and look at the numbers. But, you know, the, the big stocks that drove the NASDAQ did get clobbered pretty close to that at the, you know, maybe mid-June of 2022. I'm sorry, 2022. What that really speaks to is diversification, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, and, and if that is, you know, if that, if that extrapolates correctly, that means that account probably looked really, really good in February or in uh, 2018, 2019, and the first half of, or after the, you know, correction in 2020, you know, early, right. like, like large cap growth tech stocks were the place to be, but that cuts both ways. And when we talk about diversification, there should always be stuff in your account you don't like. Because then when things rotate, those are the things that are going to help you and support you. Um, to put a, put a little different spin on it, I had a client ask me in a review earlier this week, tell me again why we own bonds. It seems like bonds always underperform stocks. And, you know, I pulled out the chart of like, here's a, here's a you know, 80% stock portfolio over the last 20 years. And here's a... Um, I don't. I think I did like forty percent to compare and showed how that smooths out those lines. And you know, when someone tells me they're down as much as the worst part of the market, the first thing you know is they're not diversified. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and I, and I think on, on a on a higher end level, as an investor, if you're kind of doing this on your own, you should have some sort of benchmark so you know kind of where you should be. And if you're not there, then you probably need to reevaluate where you're at diversification wise. All those things, and also too, you know, to draw kind of a a distinction between and not maybe take that as like literally being down half, but let's say let's say instead they had said my account is down as much as the stock market. Okay. Whatever that number is, you know, that's one thing. If you're 25, I would say, Hey, so what? Buy more, you know, here's the rubber band. Right. And, uh, and, and just, you know, throw your, throw your account statement in the trash and remember that every month you're buying stuff that's, that's at a discount. It's a completely different equation. If you're like 60 and want to be retired at 65. Right. And, and so, you know, that answer is the way you deal with that is your portfolio should be different as you get closer to retirement or close. I, I, I always like to say closer to needing the money, a shorter time horizon rather than retirement, because that can also, you know, you need to unpack whether you're going to be spending your money from your retirement account right away. You know, what's your source of funds? It can be different. But you get the idea, you know, that portfolio should have, you shouldn't be down half, you shouldn't be down as much as the market if you're that close to retirement, because there should be some safe assets in there. Cool. So um, question number two, Dave, is how do I get good health insurance if I don't work somewhere that provides it? Yeah. 
Always, uh, always fun to talk about health insurance. Marry a government employee? Is that an, is that an option? Work for 100% of the financial planners on this call, right? That's right. <laughs> yep. Um, yes. But uh, now, you know, uh, Obamacare, the, uh, uh, the, the whole... Affordable Care Act. Affordable Care Act. You know, it's it's politically fraught how people feel about it. But the bottom line is, if you need to go out and buy your own health insurance, there are better tools available now than there were before that. And with the biggest issue we always had with people changing jobs or the biggest concern was, are you insurable? Right? Right. And a lot of that risk has has gone away because there's there's more guaranteed availability now. Absolutely, and I think another thing too, we deal with this a lot on the um, other end of the spectrum, which is okay. I want to retire before mm-hmm. Medicare hits, yeah. and so now I've got to bridge that gap. And there's definitely you know the Affordable Care Act, and each state kind of has their own plan where you can go on the marketplace and search for a plan mm-hmm. that fits you. But also there's subsidies involved depending on your income. And, and it might be yeah. surprising to some people where those subsidies hit. Not, you know, this is uh, making stuff up here, but I'm pretty sure it's around somewhere between 60 and $80,000 a year is kind of that cutoff for a mm-hmm. couple. And, and so, you know, depending on where you fall on the spectrum, you might be getting some money for the government as a part of that. But like a lot of things where we know enough to be dangerous with Dave, our best advice is to find an agent that yes. works with the marketplace on a regular basis that can help walk you through that. Yes. I think what a lot of people don't realize is those agents get paid you know, through the marketplace. Um, and so right. whether you use them or whether you go to Blue Cross Blue Shield yourself and sign up, it's the same price. There's no difference yeah. in price because you're using an agent. But it's going to be a lot more beneficial to have your questions answered, to have them look up and see what coverage makes the most sense. Look at if you have prescriptions and figure out what's going to be the best coverage on that aspect. You know, it can be invaluable to have a good health insurance agent. And the plans are varied in terms of costs and what they cover and what's important. So so we've sat down, we've each walked through this with clients with um, Justine Bell, our favorite uh, consultant in this space. And what she goes through on the um, marketplace website with clients is basically like, okay, is it important to you to work with doctors, you know, particular doctors versus, you know, not, not really being too concerned with that? Are you on particular prescriptions? You can put all of that into the marketplace website and filter out the plans that will and will not work for you because these things, just like so many things these days, they're commoditized, right? If something is less expensive, it's not just that somebody's giving you a deal. The coverage is going to be different. And what works for Nick might not work for me based on the doctors that I want to use and which networks they're in and a particular group of prescriptions I need to take that are covered under some plans that maybe aren't covered under others. So you can do this stuff on the marketplace website, but I would highly recommend you talk to somebody that knows what they're doing. They can walk you through which questions are most important and how you should think about it. 
For sure. And, you know, there's different levels of plans, you know, um, Mm -hmm. some of them through the marketplace are HSA eligible. And so you just kind of have to figure out what your health level is, what you want out of your health insurance plan. And the main thing that I, you know, I'm a firm believer in insurance, um, but I'm a firm believer that it's more about having coverage for things that could absolutely be catastrophic to you. And so, and less of a fan of, you know, healthcare has kind of been pigeonholed into this healthcare insurance has been pigeonholed into our, you know, healthcare system where we have to cover everything. Not, not necessarily is always the case, especially if you're paying for it on your own, because the right. more coverage you have, the more expensive it gets. Right. So a lot of times, you know, figuring out what that level is, what you want to have covered on a regular basis and having a good emergency contingency fund to cover the unexpected stuff um, yep. tends to be the best way to go about looking at, you know, insurance yeah. in general, but even health insurance. Yeah. If, if you've got a cushion in your savings account to cover things and you're reasonably healthy, having a higher deductible with less specific coverages is probably a, a better route. Question number three, Dave. Uh, what are some safe retirement investment options for someone who does not want to lose their principal? Yeah, great question. Okay, where to start on this one? The first thing I, I always like to point out to people is that really there's no free return out there, right? Mm-hmm. If you want a higher return than you're going to get on bank assets or, you know, treasury bills, you know, uh, which, you know, right now you can, you can get 2% on a high yield savings account for the first time in a while. Um, if you want to make more than that, you have to give something up. Either right. you're going to give up market risk, meaning whatever you're investing in moves up and down with the markets, or you're going to give up liquidity risk in that you have to lock it up for a certain period of time. There's always going to be some trade-off. So it really depends on what kind of risk do you need to take and want to take. You know, for some people, well, and I guess, you know, to add another way to think about it, we always talk about there's really like four things you can affect for retirement planning. Okay. There's when are you going to retire? How long are you going to work? How much are you going to save in the meantime? Or can you save? Mm-hmm. How much do you need to spend during retirement? And how much risk do you want to take on your funds to get there? So right. if you decide you're going to take no risk or less risk, then those other variables need to change too, because the equation still has to balance out. So either you need to work longer, save more, or plan to spend less or some, you know, compromise of those three things. Right. And if you want to retire early, then you need to save more now, spend less later, or take more risk or some combination of those things. You know, there's only Mm -hmm. so many levers you can pull. We can't affect market outcomes. We can't decide what the market's going to do, but we can decide how much we believe taking a certain amount of risk helps close those gaps. So that's the first thing to think about is what is what does taking risk mean in terms of the other things you want to do and what's the right trade-off there? Absolutely. I think that, you know, super important to think about it in terms of, okay, here's my goals, right? Mm-hmm. And if I can, you know, that figuring out what you want out of when you want to retire, how much you're going to need, how much you can save, 
is really that crucial step between do I need to take risk or is taking risk worth the trade-off of having to work an extra mm-hmm. two or three years? And I think that often gets missed in this question mm-hmm. where people just decide they're not going to take risk and don't really figure out how it's going to affect those other things. And right. then 10 or 15 years down the road, they end up in trouble. Yeah, And that's not to say that there's not people out there that don't have to take risk that can have something where they don't right. lose their principal, but their situation may be very different than yours. The, the other three variables for them solve the equation without having to take, they can take, yeah. But right. so another, another aspect of that, and then we should actually answer the question about vehicles that are out there. If you're making two, say you, say you put your retirement savings in an IRA CD at the bank for, you know, and, and you're making, I don't know, between one and 2% right now, you're not ever having to worry about the markets, Right. But I'll guarantee you, you're losing money right now. You're losing about six and a half percent because inflation is real. And, and, you know, we've, we've talked about inflation so much this uh, last eight months. It's more, it's become our new budgeting, but, um, you know, just remember it's, it's the type of risk you're willing to take. And I think when people say that they're saying, they're saying, I just can't stand to think about the markets or watch things fluctuate. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what they're saying. They're willing to take that inflation risk. And they really, if they stopped and thought about it, they'd understand it's, it's a very real risk. It's a guaranteed loss, you know. And so is some market risk of, you know, to keep that in perspective appropriate. So what can you do if you, if you don't want to take any principal risk? We talked a little about obviously CDs or treasuries and those are kind of, you know, treasuries are widely considered the safest quote unquote Mm -hmm. asset out there because it's backed by the uh, tax paying ability of the U.S. government. And so that's why we see a lot of flight to safety when the market kind of goes crazy. People buy treasuries. Right. And CDs kind of have that same feel where, you know, that the strength of a CD comes in the form of FDIC insurance, which is also Mm -hmm. or and CUA if you're in the credit union world, which yep. comes from the ability to basically have an unlimited line of credit from the U.S. government. So then there, there's also another way that some people think about this, and that's that I don't mind if things fluctuate in value right now, as long as I know I have some defined outcome. So say mm-hmm. buying an individual bond would cover that. Say, uh, you know, if you're willing to ignore it for five years, but you know, I'm going to invest $100,000 today and I need to know I'm going to earn interest and have my $100,000 back at a particular time. There are vehicles that will do that. The problem is with rates as low as they are, you know, that, that was a common, we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. We've had some clients specifically ask about this, you know, can I just invest my principal and live off the interest and dividends? That's very right. tough these days in this environment. That used to be a, mm-hmm. a more viable strategy. But what you're basically doing is saying, I'm willing to lock that principle up and not touch it. So it may fluctuate in price or not be available for certain amounts of time and live off the dividends and interest back to where we were on the first part of the question, or actually, um, yeah, on the first part of this question, you know, you're basically saying, I'm okay, you know, with 4%, as long as it's coming from dividends and interest, and I can ignore the rest. There's a, that's a, we could record a whole podcast on the total return versus dividends and interest philosophy, right? But remember, you know, you can't get away from that. If it's paying me more interest, I'm taking more risk, either liquidity risk or principal risk. 
Okay. You just yep. can't get away from that. Then the other thing to talk about in this context is some of the vehicles that are out there that transfer risk. So, you know, the most popular ones out there right now are um, probably fixed indexed annuities. And when you buy an annuity, you there's we could record six podcasts on the different types of annuities. <laughs> but just in general, what you're doing is buying some kind of defined outcome, whether it's a guaranteed amount of income, guaranteed that your principal won't fluctuate, guaranteed that you'll make at least a little bit of money, but you may make more if the markets do well. There's all kinds of different versions of these things. But in every single one of them, you're usually giving up liquidity and you're giving up potential return. Because what's going on is the insurance company is saying, we'll take your money, we'll invest it in the markets behind the scenes, and we'll right. guarantee you a certain portion of that because we know we can, we, you know, we can stand the risk and you, you don't want to think about it. And that's okay. I don't, you know, I'm not making a, a judgment on that, but you've got to always start from the idea that you're paying them to do that in one form or another. And if you make 4% on an annuity, you probably could have made 6 or 7% if you'd been willing to invest it on your own. That's a great point. I think a lot of people don't realize that. They just assume, okay, I'm going to transfer, you know, I'm going to buy this annuity and they're going to give me a 4% guaranteed rate of return. Well, the insurance company isn't in the business of losing money. And so they know for a fact over the long term, they're going to get much higher than 4% because like you said, they're going to invest their money at a, in a, in a way that gives them a higher rate of return. And, you know, there can be arguments made on both sides, but A, they have more money to invest. So that gives them a little bit of an advantage. And also they you know, have the with, the ability to withstand those fluctuations more than maybe you do as an individual. So, yeah. um, but I think that people just forget that and gloss over that and assume that they're just getting a 4% rate of return and it's guaranteed and don't really think of the, of how and why they're getting that. At the end of the day, just remember, there's no free lunch. If you're getting a defined outcome, you're paying for it somehow. Absolutely. And 100%. That can have its place. Just know, just go into it eyes wide open that that you're basically paying to remove that risk. Well, Dave, we've got a couple more questions, uh, but I think like last time, we're going to cut it off here and do round two of Ask Me Anything. These are great questions. um, And... As always, if you, the listener, have questions, feel free to shoot us an email at info at srbadvisors.com. So if you didn't get your question answered today, be sure to uh, look for that next episode next week where we finish this off. Dave, All right. As always, been a pleasure. These were some great questions. Had a lot of fun today. Kind of kept us on our toes a little bit. Great. Thank you, Nick. Talk to you later. Gather round and follow the Kitchen Table Finance Podcast to learn about money and simple ways you can invest right now. You can find more practical advice at srbadvisors.com and contact the team for personal planning by emailing info at srbadvisors.com.